Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast. I'm Chris Webster. And I'm April Camp Whitaker. On today's show, we'll talk to the director and one of the stars of an upcoming documentary called The Anthropologist. Let's dig a little deeper. So today we're going to be doing something a little different, and we have an interview with Seth Kramer and Susie Crate, who are the director and the main, uh, one of the stars of a new documentary called The Anthropologist. And this is a fabulous documentary. Chris and I have both watched it a couple of times now and absolutely love it. And it's a really great combination of what do anthropologists do, watching anthropologists work in the field, uh, while also talking about climate change and this really important issue that we're all facing. Um, And what they're trying to do is put a human face to climate change and recognize that we often see it as science, but it also has a human impact and bring that to the fore. And probably what makes this movie fabulous is that they are following both Susie Crate and her daughter, Katie, over five years um, and watching as the two of them travel around the world to multiple locations impacted by climate change and seeing the dynamic relationship between the two. But then also adding kind of this subtext of two anthropologist daughters and also looking at Margaret Mead's daughter and talking about how you become an anthropologist and what anthropology does and experiences. Um, So we'll go ahead and segue right into today's interview. back with episode two of the brand new archaeology podcast i've got april on the line april how's it going pretty good how are you today good good all right we're gonna do something pretty exciting for our first interview episode and only our third episode altogether. we had an episode zero so this is episode three go check out the other two there's a new documentary coming out and i think i first heard about it on facebook then i started contacting the people in charge of the documentary and they gave us an advanced copy that we could take a look at we did that, and now we have Mr. Seth Kramer, the director. How's it going, Seth? It's great. Great to be with you guys. Okay, and we have on one of the stars of the show, Dr. Susie Crate. Susie, how's it going? Very well. Awesome. So we're going to talk about the new documentary, what it's about, 
what your motivations were for creating it. And I think we'll start with Seth. Seth, what led to the creation of this documentary and what made you want to do it? Well, um, let me, I guess let me start by saying I'm, uh, I'm, I'm part of a team. So our, our company is called Ironbound Films, and I have two other filmmaking partners. And we really wanted to make a film about climate change. Uh, and we had observed that, you know, th there's, well, first of all, there's, there's a lot of documentaries already about climate change, and many of them are, uh, are excellent. Uh, but of the science, you know, the science-based ones, you'll see scientists who are almost exclusively representing sort of like the natural sciences or like the hard sciences. So you'll, you'll have glaciologists and oceanographers and, you know, experts about the, the atmosphere. And, and you really don't see, possibly never see, um, a, a, an anthropologist or someone representing the, the social sciences, which seems crazy. Uh, seemed crazy to us. So we wanted to tell this story through the eyes of an anthropologist, and that's how we came to make the film, The Anthropologist. That's the short answer. <laughs> the long answer will take uh, three days. <laughs> nice. Right. So how did you find uh, Susie Crate? Well, you know, it's it's interesting because a lot of anthropologists are dealing with the issue of climate change, um, at least if they're if they're doing field work um, in sort of areas that are located within the, the climate extremes. Um, not, not every anthropologist, however, sort of knows their own area of research, but also, let's say, what other anthropologists are doing or the larger issues uh, connected to climate change. So we, we really, you know, wanted to find someone who had um, specific knowledge uh, connected to their own work and, and broad knowledge. Uh, so we did a lot of phone calling and asking around. Um, you know, we have we have connections with the National Science Foundation, for instance. They've they ended up funding the documentary and they funded our work before. And and, and basically all all signs pointed to Susie Crate, um, who had conveniently just edited a book uh, <laughs> called Anthropology nice. and Climate Change. <laughs> so that was like uh, you know, gift yeah. gift from heaven. Um, met with Susie. Um, and she was, you know, absolutely fantastic. But I, I should probably say the thing that sort of sealed the deal, um, you know, she, she had expertise and she was smart and she was, you know, funny and fun. Um, but Susie was also talking with us about bringing her, um, her teenage daughter into the field with her. Uh, and we thought, well, that would make for a that seemed like at least it would make for a really interesting story, not just to to watch Susie as she goes around the world studying the impact of climate change on on different cultures, um, but to also get to see it from the perspective of a, a teenager. And so that's really the heart of the film. We followed them for five years. Uh, we started rolling when Katie, uh, Susie's daughter, was about fourteen years old. And uh, the result is sort of like this um, this kind of unusual uh, climate change coming of age uh, dark comedy of sorts. <laughs> you quote me on that if you can remember what I just said. Nice, nice. <laughs> I like it. Well, Susie, you've been doing research in Siberia for some time now, right? Yeah. When did you start noticing the impacts of climate change or was it more right away? Well, I started working in this part of Siberia in, with the communities that I, to this day, am working with in 1991. And 
uh, I was working on various projects on on change. I was looking at how they had adapted to the fall of the Soviet Union on a household food production level. That was my dissertation research. And then I was um, looking at how they were grappling with the post-Soviet changes um, with access to world media and consumer products and values. And I started um, a project on future sustainability, having communities define that for themselves. And in the process of that research, 90% uh, of the people that responded to a survey that we administered uh, in the final question where they, I asked, is there anything else you want to tell me about that I haven't asked? They said something about the, the strange cycle of the seasons that they'd never known before, how winter was warmer and summer was cooler and the precipitation was wrong, et cetera. So we decided um, to go around and interview elders in the last few weeks of that field season. And uh, that's when they started talking about the bull of winter not arriving, which is you know, lots of cultures have certain myth mythologies that explain the various times of year. And for Saha, it's something, it's a bull who comes and holds this frigid, still, quiet, calm for three months when it's so cold it can't snow. Mm, right. And so as the winter was changing to a warmer winter, um, this bull in their mindset was not arriving. So it made me really consider the cultural impacts, how climate change was not just affecting people on a physical level, but how it was affecting their stories and the way that they understood their world. Um, and they agreed that they wanted me to come back and work on a project. Um, so I came home and wrote up a new one and went back a couple of years later with a full project. Wow. So it was nice. very much, uh, it was very much initiated by them because it was something they were uh, curious and concerned and confused about. Um, so it made it a really interesting project. I uh, was, let me say, I had to that date, I had spent three winters there and uh you know, the contrast for me coming from the temperate eastern coast of the United States and spending the winter in Siberia, you know, the extreme of that for me made it a little tricky to notice the change over the period of years that I had been doing work there. But then I started to notice uh, things like the way that the hay fields were inundated with water, which is a result of various you know, the, the precipitation patterns changing, the permafrost water coming up, uh, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm going on and on here, but basically <laughs> the short story is uh, that it really came about very much as a concern that the people I had been working with for already um, 15 years uh, started talking to me about and wanting to know more about. Okay, well, we're going to get more into the climate change aspects of this because that's obviously what the documentary is about. 
But I wanted to ask you to kind of get it out of the way because it kind of frames the conversation a little bit. Um, so the film is called The Anthropologist, and one of the title screens right at the beginning of the show says it's the tale of two anthropologist daughters. So first, what brought that on? Uh, why not call it The Anthropologist and Climate Change? And then what's the Margaret Mead connection to all of this and Margaret Mead's daughter and then Susie's daughter, Katie? Right. Well, the um, the the project, I think I already sort of hit, hit on the origin of the the project. So we have Susie and we have her teenage daughter, Katie, and we're following them around the, the, the planet to, you know, places like northeastern Siberia, uh, the island, the Pacific Island nation of Kiribati, uh, the Peruvian Andes and, and elsewhere for a period of five years. Um, and and you know one of the one of the really interesting things I think about the film is that you see this young teenage girl really come of age, and and enter sort of the beginnings of adulthood, uh, and and you see her mature and really and she I mean she's just really smart and funny and creative to begin with, and you just see that sort of develop and you see sort of the birth of a a real sort of uh, world citizen. Um, I, I found that as we watched early versions of the movie, it was a little frustrating because I, I kept wanting to say, well, I wonder how Katie turns out when she's like 70, you know, <laughs> um, right. Nice. I mean, I, why, how does this, what's the long-term uh, impact of, of this very unusual childhood for Katie? Of course, you know, a time machine was not in the budget. Um, <laughs> so we couldn't film that. Um, but then, you know, we, we, we sort of we understood at that point that a lot of anthropologists take their kids into the field, and Margaret Mead, the most famous you know anthropologist of all time, was was one of them. And her daughter is now in her seventies. Follow uh, her 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 daughter's name is Mary Catherine Bateson. Followed in in Margaret Mead's footsteps. And while we can't interview an elderly Katie, we can interview her. And then suddenly the film took on this whole other, you know, life where we ended up telling these dual stories, these parallel stories of these two mother-daughter relationships that occurred through through time. A very unusual documentary. You you would never plan this from the start. It had to sort of like emerge. <laughs> You'd be crazy to. Um, but the results are pretty interesting, I think. Yeah, yeah, they definitely are. That was a very unique way to uh, approach this entire topic. I should tell you, though, Katie was, it, I think it's important to note that it was in the middle of our first field trip with these guys in Siberia where they kind of discovered Katie. Um, and I remember, you know, I don't, I think it might've been Seth who said something to me about, you know, wow. Uh, because, you know, for them, it was a kind of a time of witness. Here's this young savvy teenager who grows up outside of Washington, is growing up outside of Washington DC and yet the other side of her family is in this area of the world where you know climate change is wreaking havoc with the environment and these people's way of life and so um, I think that that's just interesting you know because it really did evolve um, originally it was not Margaret Mead and Catherine Bateson were not supposed to be in it at the beginning. It really did take this sort of natural evolution. And, and after they got put in, 
the film sort of lost the sight of climate change. And so, you know, they came down and shot a few more shots of me. That's where I'm sitting in, in my house, just like Catherine Basin sitting in her house, <laughs> like Yoda. Nice. Sprinkling the film, sprinkling the film <laughs> with all these anthropological insights, you know. Yeah. So I tried to sprinkle it with some more climate change. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> nice. What were some of the challenges of filming this over five years? And had you planned on a certain length of time? Or were you just looking for a certain amount of content? Because I know, Seth, you went to uh, Kiribati and the Peruvian Andes as well. Um, were those trips to emphasize the impact of climate change more? Or were they planned ahead of time outside the planning of this documentary? Well, for, you know, documentaries take tend to take a, a while to make just generally. <laughs> right. Um, we had uh, talked with Susie about visiting her field site for, for sure in northeastern Siberia and then going, you know, with with her and ultimately Katie else elsewhere um, to to, you know, my interest is as the filmmaker was to, you know, get this sort of fuller picture of different human experiences with climate change around the world. Um, it's it's fa it was fascinating to me personally to discover how that there were real amazing similarities in how people talked about climate change in let's say northeastern Siberia and then all the way around the planet in the you know village in the Bolib in the Peruvian Andes. Um, these are you know people, Essentially, the world the world apart, having sort of very similar ex experiences and, and observations, and so we wanted to capture things like that. Um, you know, if you're following a, a teenager uh, along in this kind of endeavor, you have to wait till like Christmas break and spring break. You know, you can't just like pick up and go. So there were sort of delays of waiting for everybody to have um, you know time in the schedule. And then, of course, it occurred to us: well, it's it's really interesting to watch. Katie sort of grow up. And that, of course, unfortunately takes time as well. I, I wanted that to happen sooner. I was like, she's not 18 yet. This is, <laughs> this is ridiculous. But yeah, so, nice. so, you know, all told, we, we just sort of stuck, stuck with it. Um, I think you could tell when watching the film, it, it's really, it's sort of like a, the boyhood of documentaries. You know, it's a real, real life coming, coming of age film that, you know, uh, unravels before your eyes uh, on the screen. <laughs> but you can definitely tell Katie's authentic reaction when Susie tells her they're spending Christmas on an island in the middle of the Pacific. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that definitely seemed realistic. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, I, I was going to say, you know, that one one of the interesting things about a movie where you're fo you're following um, Susie and her daughter is we're talking about huge, you know, challenges facing humanity, you know, climate change, what happens to a, a, a village that's losing, you know, it's, it's access to water as a glacier recedes. But we're also talking about the problem of not having power to charge up, you know, your, your iPod. Um, and, and it creates, I think in the film, this very interesting sort of dissonance, but it's something that occurs in our, our lives as well. we, address climate change. We're talking about climate change now. Um, but later we might go out to the dinner with friends and, and, and just have a laugh about a, a movie that we saw. And, and so the, the film sort of reflects that, I think, in a nice way. It really talks about these epic issues, but also uh, in, in a way that's very, very human and down to earth. 
Okay, well, we've got a lot more questions to ask, and I think we're going to take our first break and come back on the other side. See you in a minute. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. Well, we're coming back from our break on resuming our conversation with Seth Kramer and uh, um, Susie Crate and... We so one of the things that I really enjoyed about this documentary is how it jumps around and you guys visit all of these different places, but they're tied together. So how how did you figure out and choose the different locations for filming? So basically, we um, when we got back from Siberia, uh, Dan and Seth and Jeremy asked me where else we should go because. Uh, in their, they kind of set it up the same way that they set up their former film, The Linguists, where their two linguists went to their field site where they had done research for a long time. And then Ironbound took them to a couple of other places that neither of them had been before, but which had the same issues of disappearing and endangered languages. And so where should we go? Well, we'd already done the high latitude story of climate change up in Siberia, so uh, it made sense to get uh, get the sea level rise story and the unprecedented melting glaciers story. Uh, and I have a colleague who has done research in Tuvalu, and I guess Tuvalu is a little bit better known, or at that time was a little bit better known in terms of low island atolls that are feeling the effects of sea level rise. Um, and I guess Kiribati came up as an uh, an idea, and then uh, my colleague, also an anthropologist, who has a center in the Andes, uh, Patricia Hammer, who you see in the documentary. Um, I thought of her, and and so uh, we went there. So the Peruvian Andes are the second largest glacial mass next to the Himalayas in terms of supplying water um, to people. And so that's why we chose that. And Seth might have something to add to that too. No, I think I think you you said it per- perfectly. you know the the film we our hope was that viewers watching the film would get almost like a state of the planet address um, in in this sort of very you know um, entertaining and you know and yet serious serious way. So the locations, uh, and we you know really wanted to let. I mean, Su- Susie's the scientist, 
right? I'm just I'm just the filmmaker. So we really also wanted to let Susie take the lead. And uh, I had been she has you know contacts around the planet who are doing field work in, in different sites. And I think, you know, did, she did a great job. We also chose the Chesapeake to go down to the Chesapeake, uh, to the watermen and talk to them because uh, we wanted to emphasize that this isn't something that's just going on in these distant places, uh, that it's in our own backyards. And um, I, I think people in this country are increasingly understanding that. Uh, but. Um, it's critical, I think, to make it so it's not some exotic experience, but it's actually occurring on a planetary level, just not as extremely in the more temperate areas as in these more climate-sensitive climate, climate sensitive places. Well, and there's a segment in the film where you guys go to D.C. to protest a pipeline. Is that the Dakota Access Pipeline? No, that was back in the day of the... Um, Oh my gosh. The, oh, the Keystone? Uh, the Keystone. Yes, the Keystone, yeah. So you can see the guy at the very, the last shot of that uh, section, there's a guy with a big poster about the Keystone. Now that was a really interesting segment for tying it back in to the United States. And so what, in terms of kind of the documentary itself and what you do as a researcher, uh, Susie, how do you feel about some of the things that are going on kind of politically and environmentally in the United States today? Well, I feel that it's very important um, in terms of helping people understand that climate change is real, that it's happening, and that we need to do something about it. I think it's critical to bring it into people's worlds. You can't just, obviously, you can't just give them the Al Gore talk, as Seth has already mentioned also. You know, the science talk won't work. It's not just, you know, the rest of the world that understands you know, things not necessarily in a Western scientific uh, framework. Uh, people have different belief systems, different cosmologies, et cetera. But in this country, um, you know, to a large extent, people don't get the science. It's complex. I mean, it, it, to get your mind around really what's going on and all the feedbacks and all the possibilities and the uncertainty, you know, it's huge. You really do have to have, you know, an upper a higher education to gra grapple with it. And so bringing it into people's lives in the way that they're affected by it, you know, if somebody is a gardener, if somebody, even if somebody just, their only contact with nature is going out on their yacht, you know, there is a way to somehow help them understand that things are different. Um, I, um, you know, the political situation in the country right now, and in my mind, um, anyone who is in denial of climate change or doesn't think it's happening, um, these, in my mind, are the biggest criminals on the planet because this is uh, this is a crisis on a global level. Um, it's pervasive. It's gradual. We're, you know, every moment that we don't direct our uh, resources and funds towards these alternatives um, is, is many, many moments lost into the future. Um, it's a crime to humanity, I believe. Um, even if we, you know, why, if we have to just frame it like Obama has tried to, you know, we, we, we have an outdated energy system, let's face it. 
uh, you know, scientists have shown us that we're going to run out of these fossil fuels. They can, they can project that. It would be in our best interest, even if we don't, quote unquote, believe in climate change, to create a new energy system for the future. To, and we can go, go to Denmark, you know, look at these places where they're taking these cues and they're moving forward with it. So, I mean, I could go on and on forever about this. Um, I, I, you know, our political system does not work in my mind. Um, it's dysfunctional, <laughs> serious, serious issues. Mm -hmm. But we, we definitely need, need, need to, we need to hire someone. We need to, we need to elect <laughs> someone who's going to do something. Yeah, that's true. Know? That's true. Yeah, I think those terms are interchangeable these days because we are hiring a president, so to speak. <laughs> um, bringing it back to Siberia real quick, and speaking of government, what's being done over there now uh, to go beyond the film? Because you guys stopped filming a little while ago. So what um, what's being done there now? Uh, because we all know that climate change is here to stay. Even if we could freeze it right now and start reversing it, we're still talking decades. So the problems here and in the areas in the film are going to be around for decades, but we're not going to stop it. So it's just going to get worse. In the meantime, these people are going to suffer with their traditional life ways um, and their traditional ways yeah. of life and doing things. Uh, in Siberia, where you've done most of the work, most of your work, Susie, is anyone talking to them about or um, more likely what are their conversations about changing how they live and their life ways to reflect the new uh, reality that they're living in and will be living in? Well, first of all, and I say this with my own experience of trying to get people to talk about what the future is going to be like, um, that kind of conversation is really a, a Western phenomenon. Many places where you go in the world and you sit down and you get the local people to talk to you and you ask them what they think things are going to be like if what's going on now. Uh, continues into the future, they'll just look at you and sort of like stare. Because in my experience, I think it's really a luxury to be able to, you know, make prognoses about the future. I mean, these people's lives, they're, they're not just dealing with climate change. They're dealing with, uh, you know, the local effects of economic globalization. They're dealing with uh, it. And I think this is happening across the world in rural areas. Young people are leaving these rural areas to go to the regional and the urban centers because as some of my um, collaborators have said, they're listening, they're listening to a different voice. So, you know, their whole, you know, links to social media and the other world um, is leading them to, to leave, you know, their historically based way of living and to go into these regional centers. But, you know, it's not necessarily good or bad. It's just, it's what's happening. It's a process, I think, that's happening on a global scale. I do know that in, in Russia, um, there's, you know, much stronger denial uh, than there is in this country. Um, I don't even think it's even talked about politically, except for that it's just it's a uh, it's some sort of a uh, trick, you know, to get you know because I mean think about it. Russia depends on raw natural resources for its economy. It's 
rich in gas and oil and coal and all of these fossil fuels that we're talking about. Um, and then there's these other political issues in Russia, which we're all aware of. But um, yeah, one of the reasons that I started collaborating with Alexander Fyodorov, who's in the film, the permafrost scientist, was because the communities uh, weren't aware of how climate change was affecting them immediately in their local areas. They knew about it from the newspaper and they knew about other places in the world that had these effects because there was no information coming to them. And so since his research was specifically looking at the ways that permafrost was warming as a result of global climate change, um, and he was in the neighboring region, he was from, sorry, the neighboring region, the Nurba region, so he was a local person who people would listen to and et cetera. Um, we had him come out and do these knowledge exchanges, which are represented somewhat in the film um, to help people understand. It seems like what's happening in Siberia is almost a real-time example of what's happened in the past on this continent, like at uh, Cahokia or Chaco Canyon, for example, where resources were depleted in some cases, climate change is happening, and people just slowly depopulate the area. To us, to archaeologists, it looks like it, you know, it's like one day there's a thousand people there and the next day there's zero people there, but obviously it didn't happen that way. It was probably a very long and, and painful process for these, uh, for these changes to take place. And it's unfortunate that we get to watch that in real time over there in Siberia. And then going right. down to, uh, going down to Kiribati, I mean, at least in Siberia, I mean, it's, it's a horrible thing and they're not thinking about it, but you know, they've got a lot of land to deal with there. Then if they could figure out a way to make their way somewhere else and, and they could work that out politically and that could happen, that's fine. But in Kiribati, I mean, they, they literally mm. have nowhere to go. So, you know, what's, what's well, the conversation? Well, they've actually, um, they've bought land on Fiji. Oh, really? Um, a lot of, yeah, a lot of the, you know, it's not just Kiribati and Tuvalu, the mm -hmm. entire South Pacific Sure. area of these island states are in crisis. And so one of the big mantras today is to relocate with pride. Mm -hmm. And the idea here is not to relocate piecemeal, you know, and people have already done this, going to New Zealand and Australia, et cetera, one by one or two by two. Um, the idea here is to go as a community, uh, to go in groups in order to be able to, and we mentioned this, Claire talks, the woman in Kiribati talks about how if they no longer have their islands, they will no longer have their language, their culture, their community, their lives. And this is true. The first thing that they'll lose is their language. Um, and language is one of the biggest indicators of cultural integrity of a group that you can find. Um, so the idea here is to move to Fiji um, in, in groups and to try to remake you know, their home there. Mm -hmm. It's very sad that they have to leave, of course. Right. Um, but as Arthur Webb says in the film, it's, you know, islands are difficult places to inhabit. And, mm -hmm. and with this, <laughs> right. we could say maybe impossible. Indeed. Is there a bigger push from the anthropological community to, to record some of the, the cultures and uh, the, the, the traditions and things that might be lost as a result of this move? Is there a bigger push to record some of this stuff and at least pre at least preserve it in that way? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, mm -hmm. I have not heard of a specific push in that direction in terms of documenting. Um, 
I think that uh, to some extent, and it's interesting because when you said that, um, what came to mind was that point in the film where um, Catherine Bateson talks about how her mother would, you know, document the last grandmother who knew the myth. Remember that? Right, right. Well, I've seen it. I've seen it a hundred times, so <laughs> I kind of know it by heart. Anyway, um, that that whole tradition in anthropology um, has really it hasn't gone by the wayside in terms of saying, well, that doesn't matter or anything. But um, the idea that you know the last myth. This a whole idea of a traditional culture that no longer exists has sort of been thrown out in in anthropology just because we now understand that there is no such thing as a set in stone traditional culture. There's cultures are continually evolving. For sure. And that Kiribati, even though the Kiribati people will move to different places, they will still continue to be the Kiribati people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they might be doing something in terms of trying to, you know, document their life in that place before that place goes underwater. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all kinds of activities going on. Unfortunately, I haven't had the time to stay in touch very well with Claire and everyone. Uh, we're friends on Facebook, and I see some of the things that are coming around. Right. Um, okay. Well, let's about- talk. <laughs> after the break i think <laughs> getting close getting close well before we do that uh what's the so we've talked about you know kiribati and, and siberia well so what are they what's the conversation in the uh, in the peruvian andes where you guys were um you know what are, what are, what are they thinking about doing uh to to fix their situation or to help try to improve it uh so do you want me to jump in or uh, go ahead jump on know, in they, <laughs> I there's there's nothing that I've seen um, that's going on in a in a big way to uh, solve this problem of millions of people <laughs> in one of the most arid parts of the planet in the Peruvian Andes um, to you know who are going to lose water because the glaciers are are essentially disappearing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen little tiny effort, you know, relatively small efforts to find new ways to pull water out of the atmosphere. I've seen an effort to try to paint mountains white to sort of re- reflect the sunlight back up, you know, th- which I, it doesn't seem like it's going to cut it. But these are these are some of the smaller efforts that they're doing to try to uh, to to deal with the situation. Yeah, I did just see an article about a, a very Star Wars esque um, water water device that yeah it looks like you know one of those things in the in the star wars you know the first star wars movie that mm-hmm. came out that it just they're they're water collectors basically and they just pull it right out of the air because even the most arid desert i think a desert technically has something like less than four percent water in the atmosphere but it still has water so you know if we can just manage to extract that then maybe that will that will help some people but i don't think it'll help millions of people no matter how much water they pull out of the atmosphere so. Yeah, and it's it's important to emphasize that the millions of people that Seth is referring to are the people um, down near sea level all along the coast of Peru, mm. where Lima is. The majority of the population lives along the coastline in those areas there, and that's their source of drinking water are those glaciers. And the right. same with the Himalayans. Right. I forget how many millions of people depend on the glaciers in the Himalaya for drinking water. 
Well, hopefully science has the answers uh, eventually, sooner rather than later, with either pulling water out of the atmosphere or efficient um, desalination processes because they're living near a ton of water that's getting closer and closer to them down near sea level. So, you know, hopefully they can try to we can solve those problems sooner rather than later. Um, let's go to break real quick uh, for our last one, and we'll come back and finish up this conversation about the anthropologist with Susie Crate and Seth Kramer. Back in a minute. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Okay, we're back. Um, and, you know, just to kind of have a, a possibly more lighthearted conversation just a little bit here for a minute. Um, at some point, um, Susie, you mentioned when you guys are in Kiribati and you're, you're, you're taking a small boat to one of the other islands, um, you mentioned the concept of island time uh, and, and how they're, you know, everything just happens a little bit slower and schedules are a little bit looser. But, you know, I've noticed, and I'm sure you guys have too, that that is a concept mm-hmm. that happens a lot of places. I spent, uh, I spent three weeks in Africa right when I finished um, my undergrad. And Africa time was a serious concept there. And I mean, you just, you just didn't plan on anything happening really on time. It happened when it happened. You know, you were lucky it happened that day, quite frankly. And uh, I, I mean, let's, <laughs> Susie, you've worked all over the place. And Seth, you've been all over the place. What, how do you mm. think that reflects on, on how people that have those concepts of time where they're a little more loose. I mean, uh, people in our in our fast hustle bustle world over here in the United States might think, "Oh, that seems so relaxing," but it seems like it also comes with a lot of problems as well, because um, they they also tend to be you know poorer countries in a lot of cases and uh, and things like that. So, I mean, is this just an attitude towards life that 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 a lot of people tend to have that we've I don't know we've destroyed over here in the United States with iPhones and and things like that, or um, you know what what's your What's your thoughts on that, Susie? Well, yes, I've certainly experienced it in other places. Uh, and it's made me feel like I'm, you know, just way too kind of obsessive about being on time. Um, but at the same moment, I think it's important to be on time. I'm not sure where I'm going with this. You kind of got me thinking. You got me thinking, and so I'm thinking out loud. Um, I've actually heard, I have a few colleagues who work in countries uh, where, you know, they're economically challenged compared to our country. And I'm not saying that our system is the best, but there is something good to be said about being on time and showing up and 
in terms of just, you know, respecting other people's time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's relaxing when you're on vacation to go into a situation where things are a lot looser. But I think in terms of getting things done, um, I, I think it's, it's more uh, productive. So I'm not sure. Maybe Seth will have a better answer to that question. Uh, unlikely. No, I, 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 we, we screened the anthropologist um, in just recently in Vienna. We did a series of screenings. Um, it might be sort of needless to say the the Austrian people do not do the island time thing. They are extremely <laughs> punctual, and so we had some conversations about it actually. Um, so it's funny you you bring this up, and um, you know it it occur it occurred to the the audience um, at this particular screening that that different cultures and I, I I've observed this and I'm sure Susie has as well. Different cultures actually like self-identify with the way they perceive time. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you know Susie saying, "Oh, island time." Um, she's not making fun of the people of Kiribati. They right. they understand that they have island time there, and it becomes almost a point of pride. You know, we are on island time, um, and the Austrian people, you know, in in Vienna are proud of their punctuality. <laughs> uh, so that was that's that's sort of an, an interesting um, observation. Beyond that, I'm not sure I would put a value judgment on it. Mm-hmm. Um, is something that uh, that we we've, we've observed, and it's it's pretty amusing. Yeah, correlation does not always equal causation, as they say sometimes. So um, it might just be right. a coincidence that uh, that you know cultures that have that sort of concept of a, a more um, laissez-faire attitude towards the day um, are also <laughs> you know also have these other qualities, but it might not have one thing to do with each other. I'm not really sure, but I was trying to think of ways you know without because there's got to be that sweet spot when you're talking to these cultures that are that are endangered for one reason or another, whether it's climate change or something else trying to assist them in some way or, or teach them something or give them some sort of, um, you know, advantage over their situation without also destroying who they are, you know, and, mm. and, and completely eliminating that. Cause I wouldn't want to give, I wouldn't want to give everybody in Kiribati, you know, and, uh, you know, a, a smartphone and a calendar and say, you'll be on time from here on out and that'll solve all your problems. But, uh, <laughs> you know, what right. it, it wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't, no, of course not. And, at the point, it points to the problem of dislocation. If these mm-hmm. c- communities that we focused on and others have to uproot and 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 move, I mean, this it's just one small example of you could imagine the people of Kiribati having to uproot and move to like let's say a larger city where the concept of time is different. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- this is this community is going to face just it's just a horrific, you know, sort of tearing of their of their culture and their, their identity. And that's just one small example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we've, we've filmed, uh, not particularly for this film, but in different communities around the world where language is place dependent. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be just as big an issue as the way different people, you know, conceive of and interact with time where a language, you know, is, is based, has, has, has ways of expressing itself specific to the landscape where these people live in relation to say a particular mountain so you move those people because of climate change they have to move their their literal their language won't make as much sense so you know i i don't know how you begin to solve these kind of problems 
Right. Well, and one of the things that I noticed watching the film is there's almost a theme that comes out where you see the different groups you're trying to and how they connect with the land and they understand the environment they're living in and the land they're living on and the impacts of climate change in a way that I think a lot of us who live in heavy urban environments and um, don't interact with our environments in quite the same way, mm. we don't see the impacts of climate change. It's buffered for us. Um, right. And it's it's part of this cultural difference of how we approach and understand the world that surrounds us, which I think the film really just brings out beautifully. Yeah, I mean, I think it was I think it was 10 years ago that the World Bank came out with uh, um, statistics that show that climate change is affecting developing countries by higher mortality rates and it's affecting developed countries by higher costs. So to some extent, we we have the ability to buffer ourselves. I mean, not only is our the way we live much more, you know, disconnected from that immediacy of growing your own food and raising your own animals. But on top of it, we have the resources to cool ourselves, to heat ourselves, to move away, etc., which is not true in these other other contexts. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it allows us to be deniers in a certain way. Mm -hmm. We don't we don't see it. It doesn't affect us. So we can disbelieve the impacts of climate change, which, sure. you know, listening to all of the different people you're working with and talking to, they know it and they see it and they know where, why it's happening. But yeah, it comes down to what do you do about it? How, and how do you see documentaries like this? And one of the things you guys talk about a lot is anthropologic anthropologists as activists. And what do you kind of mm -hmm. see the role of this kind of work moving forward and trying to affect change? Well, uh, you know, one of the you, you're right that we live in a uh, you know m most of us here in the United States live in a temperate climate, right? So, denying climate change is a luxury that we feel we have. We don't really have that luxury, but but we're we're able to do it. So, one of the aims of the film is to show people people who do not have the luxury of denying climate change. Um, one of the things that that me and my my fellow filmmakers observed with a lot of uh, documentaries about climate change, while very good, um, they still tend to talk about climate change as something that's uh, going to happen in the future. Or if they talk about climate change happening now, it's more likely to, to they're more likely to discuss um, the impact on penguins and polar bears and ice caps. Um, so part of the aim of this film was to show human beings, impacted by climate change right now and to bring that to audiences in the states and and i think so far so good um you know people it's it's the film if you see it it's it's not giving you like a hard science lesson and it's not particularly preachy um but if you see people who are facing it you can't deny it and it really it has to have an impact uh, we brought this to not just we, we don't want to preach to the choir with this film um, so we're trying to find audiences who are sort of less likely to want to see or think they want to see a, a climate change documentary. Um, and, and so far the impact there has been great. We've been taking to a lot of, um, how, how shall I say this? There, there, there are actually, you know, uh, people who study public, uh, reaction to climate change have maps 
of like where deniers are concentrated. Um, it, it actually, it's funny to see. It, it sort of correlates with like the Trump voter map <laughs> that, you, right, right. that you would see. So we're, we're starting to do screenings in these places and let's say with church groups and community groups. And so the film, I think because of its tone, because it's sort of entertaining, um, is I, I think it's starting to make some headway in, in with, with those kind of groups. I'm very proud of that. And we'll try to continue doing that. Yeah, it seems like the red and blue political map of our country is um, very, very indicative of climate change deniers, which is kind of ironic since the red, you know, could represent heat or climate change denier or Republican. So, you know, that we just alienated half of our audience. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm wondering, you know, we talk about like like April's question about, you know, uh, activism and and. And show and, and you, Seth, talking about showing this in places where people can actually um, receive the message that might not be getting it right now. Um, what is there? Have you considered? I know the film officially releases on November 11th, I believe. Uh, mm -hmm. Is there is there some sort of call to action you guys have? Like if somebody sees this film and they're just like, oh, my God, I got to do something. What can I do? Where can I go? You know, rather than going out and buying LED light bulbs, what can I you know, what can I do to help doing this? Is it, you know, what's the, what's well, your response to that? I can, I can chime in here. Um, I have been to some screenings and done the Q and A and I often get that question. Mm -hmm. um, and what I tell people, uh, of course, you know, make your vote count, et cetera. Right. But I emphasize the importance of, of, raising awareness in your own community um, about where you get what you need to live. Mm -hmm. So we live on these extensive centralized food, energy, water systems, and this whole concept of localizing your life, you know, just get together and make it sort of an educational process of thinking about, you know, well, how can we uh, get what we need in a more local way. Can we? That, well, that would be the first question. <laughs> and, you know, this whole idea, there's, of course, a big movement in this country and in Europe, a locavore movement where people are trying to focus more. Um, I talk to my students about this also. You know, I tell them it, I'm not that old, but I remember when I was a child, we had strawberries in the springtime and that was it. Mm -hmm. And we would anticipate them and they were so delicious. And now, you know, just go into the food store, into the produce section, and look at where these um, different fruits and vegetables are coming from. Um, and you realize this, the globalization of our food system. So right. I emphasize that. I emphasize that because I think the building of community uh, by doing that is one of the ways that we're going to be able to deal with the changes that are coming our way. And I also um, emphasize the need to uh, radically change our education system so that young people aren't just taught to regurgitate facts, but to think think in a um, problem-solving way mm -hmm. and to uh, really cultivate that innovative, creative spirit that's in each child, because it's those innovations and those ideas that are, as we say in the film, it's that innovative aspect of human nature that's going to um, problem solve mm -hmm. a lot of what we need to get out of here. Well, yeah, and it, it seems it's interesting you're talking about thinking about, um, 
you know, what people can do and the thinking about our food chain and things like that and where we're getting our food. I mean, I live in the, I live in the West. I live in Reno and I mean, and April, you know, lives in Phoenix, a city that shouldn't even exist really. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and I just, and, and last year my company did a, a big project down in, uh, one big project down in El Centro, California, near the Mexican border, which is below sea level and, uh, a project in Ridgecrest, California, uh, which is at the east edge of the Mojave and the southern end of the um, Sierra Nevada mountain range, two towns which actually shouldn't exist. Um, I mean, looking at mm. El Centro, El Centro is a crazy, huge uh, agricultural center. Um, they, they, uh, that's all they have is agricultural um, uh, industry down there. And you see all these canals and everything, and it's, it's literally 110, 120 degrees like half of the year. And their slogan on their on their their big sign coming into town is where the sun spends the winter and uh and i'm like you know we're, we're so stubborn you know we talk about these other places you know we, we just earlier i was thinking well why don't the people in siberia just move why don't the you know blah 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 but we have so many towns out here in the west that it just shouldn't exist but we're here and we're going to make it work and i'm you know i'm thinking about trying to get local food in reno and that's really actually kind of hard to do um you know local to reno either means your own little garden which you can only grow in for maybe four months out of the year or california you know which is about as local as we can get which is still better than i guess china but you know it's uh we're all just we're all just so stubborn there's not really a question there just a frustration about the west (laughs) so so you you asked if there was going to be a call to action in the film yes uh or attached to the film we we specifically wanted there to be no call to action in the movie. Okay. And again, it's this idea that we're not preaching to the choir. We don't want to come across as pushy and we want to target people who are maybe on the denial fence, maybe bring, bring them in. And so we're just very careful to show what, what's going on. But what we've seen is that despite that, um, it's hard not to want to get involved after seeing the movie, and sure. and it's it's already starting to inspire some action, especially on campuses where we've screened it. For sure. Okay. Well, we've only got a few minutes left, so um, as I said, the film comes out November 11th. Um, what what kind of release are you having on that? Where where will people be able to see it? Well, this is pretty exciting. So we have a theatrical release coming up beginning November 11th. That's definitely going to be uh, New York, L.A. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see from there, but everyone will be able to see it. Um, in December, it will come out on iTunes and elsewhere online. Um, and in the weeks following, I think it's like December 6th, you could actually go on iTunes and pre-order the film for like two bucks or something. I mean, talk about the deal of the century. So, so after when December rolls around, everyone uh, will be able to, uh, to see it. Okay. Hey, you know, Seth, December 6th is Katie's 21st birthday. Nice. Isn't that something? <laughs> How coincidental. Nice. <laughs> That's well, incredible. <laughs> and that was that was one of my last questions. There was hints at the end of the movie. Um, you know, I know things changed that she was actually going to college as an anthropology major. Did that stick? She is not a major in anthropology. I mean, in the film, she says she's going to major in international and global studies uh, and linguistics. Right. And the linguistics uh, kind of went out the window after she got about four weeks into the first class <laughs> on linguistics. Right. So she realized linguistics is not about learning languages. It's about picking them apart and right. all that. So um, she is double majoring in international and global studies 
uh, Russian languages and literature, and she's double minoring in indigenous studies and anthropology. Okay, nice. And uh-huh. she, she must be about done getting close to it anyway. Well, she's going to study abroad in St. Petersburg in the spring. Okay. Um, and she and I are going to Australia and New Zealand for four weeks over the winter break. She doesn't have to be in St. Pete until February 3rd. So we're going to celebrate her 21st birthday in Oz. Nice, nice. That's awesome. I won't be filming it. For once, I won't be filming. <laughs> oh, come on, Seth. Okay, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. There's got to the be a sequel, right? Seeing, right. The film is really worth seeing. If, if for nothing else, Katie is such a unique uh, kid with a great sense of humor. Uh, you know, it's 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 really worth checking for no other reason for checking out for her. She's really worth knowing. Nice. But All you right. guys have seen it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've definitely seen it. Yeah. Oh, I see. You're ta- oh, Seth is talking to the audience. Is with me. Yes. I'm so sorry. Yes. No. In fact, uh, in fact, I'm pretty sure we, April and I both watched it a few weeks ago, and then um, just so it was fresh in our minds because we haven't seen it a hundred times. Um, I think we both watched it again this morning. So <laughs> just to just to wow. make sure. Yeah. Um, well, I would just say one more thing as we close here because um, I saw this on your um, on the on the website for Ironbound Films. But uh, good luck at the Oscars because it sounds like you're on the list there. Yeah, we'll we'll see. It's a very competitive field with documentaries, so I right. I would say don't hold your breath for us to like <laughs> to, to actually be at the Oscars. Um, but it, but it's nice to be uh, qualified for consideration. It's um this was a, a movie that was seven years in the making, hmm. um so you know that every every sort of uh, rec- oh, every sort of little piece of recognition that we get is 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 very sweet and rewarding especially being with you guys so thank thank you so much well yes thank you um seth and Susie, and we hope to uh we hope you guys all the success and we're definitely going to promote this and i'll promote it on the uh the archaeology podcast network when it comes out and um hopefully we can get a, a lot of people to not just see the movie for your guys' sake but to see the movie to to understand what's going on in the world a little better thank you so, very much great. Yes. A lot of fun. thank you for joining us Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArchPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. This show is edited by Christopher Sims of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. So check it out. The song I Wish You'd Look by Sea Hero was provided with special permission. Go check them out at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks. And in the meantime, keep learning, keep discovering new things, and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www. 
chris.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for a dollar 49 perfect with our classic fries price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer ba-da-ba-ba-ba